The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Hello and welcome to Baseball Barbacast, the only baseball podcast in the world who wishes that Livy had rizzed up baby pronk. I'm Jake Mintz. That's Jordan Schusterman. Is Travis Hafter the new drip king? That implies that she would have had to go to whatever remote town in North Dakota that Pronk is originally from. All kinds of layers to that reference. It is Friday. That is Jake Mintz. I am Jordan Schusterman, and we are back for another episode of Baseball Barbacast. A lot to get to on this show. Of course, we have an interview with national champion Hayden Travinsky. He is the catcher for the LSU Tigers. Uh, Just got to raise the 2023 Division I National uh, Baseball Championship trophy with his friends Paul Skeens and Dylan Cruz. So we'll hear from Hayden uh, a little bit later on in the show. Of course, we're going to start talking about the least perfect, perfect game we've ever seen, courtesy of Domingo Herman. And then in the second half, we'll talk all-star starters, as well as, of course, the good, the bad, and the ugla before I head to Cincinnati to see the sad Padres. But Jake Mintz, happy Friday. How are you? Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom to you, Jordan. I learned a new word this morning, courtesy of producer Chris, that has me absolutely buzzing, and that word is chock-a-block. C-H-O-C-K-A-B-L-O-C-K, chock-a-block. It means when something is crowded. So you would say, tonight, when Jordan heads to Cincinnati, where there is a Taylor Swift concert, it will be chock-a-block downtown. It is going to be, yes, yes. So we're going to keep working on using that in a sentence. Language of origin, et cetera, et cetera. But that's great. Maybe we should do some some Aussie vocab at the start of every show. I don't think anybody would complain about that. Let's use it in a sentence here. Domingo Herman's perfect game was chock-a-block with bad vibes. So if <laughs> well you, are, if you yeah, are listening that's... to this show, you know that Yankee starter Domingo Herman on Thursday On Wednesday evening, through a perfect game against the Oakland Athletics, a perfect game, you probably know what it is, but everyone was out. He got everybody out. It's really that simple. Someone was asking me, what's a perfect game? I said, everyone who tried to not get out got out, and that is what it is. It is the 24th perfect game in MLB history. It is the first since Felix Hernandez twirled a perfect game against the Tampa Rays in 2012. Now, Domingo Herman throwing a perfect game against the Oakland Athletics on a Wednesday night might be the most underwhelming, least enjoyable, perfect game imaginable. Since Felix threw his perfect game in 2012, every time a pitcher gets close to a perfect game, Jordan Schusterman, a diehard Mariners fan who loves this sport to his core because of Felix Hernandez, takes a look at the pitcher throwing the perfect game, and thinks, how would I feel if this pitcher were the one to be the next perfect gamer after Felix? And we've had some where I've texted you and you'd say, this is ideal. This is the perfect successor to Felix's perfect game. I believe Mm -hmm. Luis Castillo 
had one yeah, working. Yeah, we've had all kinds of, of can- I mean, Carlos Rodon, right? There's all kinds of them. And that is definitely going to be part of this conversation. But let's push my own I- issues to the second half of this conversation. Right. Because I was not alone in not enjoying this perfect game for many obvious reasons. So there are three big reasons here. One is significantly more important than the other two, and that is that Domingo Herman has a horrible past involving domestic violence. In September of 2019, Herman and his girlfriend were at a charity gala hosted by CC Sabathia. A lot of the teammates were there. At that event, Herman slapped his girlfriend in front of all these people. And then, but, but the uh, upcoming suspension or the uh, consequential suspension was more about what happened later that night where Herman was intoxicated and got physically violent toward his girlfriend. She hid in a locked room. The police were never called, so no report was ever filed. But an MLB official was told of this incident, and Herman was handed the single largest suspension, domestic violence suspension, for a player who was not charged with a crime. He missed the latter half or the latter chunk of 2019 and all of the shortened 2020 season. That is one backdrop against which this wonderful night in theory happened for Herman. And it is a very, for me, a very simple thing, which is that this is not a human being who deserves to be celebrated, who deserves to be held aloft on shoulders and championed for his actions on the field. Because no matter, this is something that's important to remember in context, no matter how impressive an athlete's accomplishments are on their playing field, it pales in comparison to who they are as people. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, a complicated conversation that has many layers to it, whatever. But for me, it is as simple as like, on Wednesday night, a lot of people said, yay, Domingo Herman," mm-hmm. And that is uncomfortable and queasy and not for, <laughs> this is probably a bad way to say it, not the vibe. No. And I would say that, you know, We'll continue having this conversation. There's versions of this where I don't necessarily want to come on here and say, you cannot celebrate this perfect game. We are all going to feel these uh, these experiences different. Sports makes us feel a lot of ways for, for good or for bad because of the people involved. And we are constantly grappling with that. And unfortunately, the nature of the sport and how we root for professional sports is that sometimes the bad people end up getting punished to the point where we don't have to think about them anymore and they're not in baseball or major league baseball. And sometimes they're, they're punished and then they, they stick around. And, uh, you know, Zach Britton had a quote after this situation where he said, which I, at the time was, was very, uh, you know, relatable in some senses, him saying, sometimes you get, you don't get to control who your teammates are. That's the situation. And that's true for him. And it's also, you don't get to control who's on your favorite team. And so I understand that there are Yankees fans who can say that want to celebrate this in some version and say, I love Kyle Higashioka and this is still a cool moment for our team. Like, that's fine. I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you how to, yeah. how to enjoy one, one or the other, but this is certainly how it made us feel. And I think how it made a lot of people feel. Um, and so I'm, I'm with you on, on obviously a lot of those sentiments. So that's one enormous piece of it. Then there are two other components, which is one earlier this season, he was suspended for using sticky stuff, which again, pales in comparison to what we just talked about, but is evidence that he was maybe trying to finagle the rules a little bit. Now, this is a little bit complicated because Scherzer was popped for this earlier this year, too. And if Scherzer threw a perfect game, I would not be coming on the podcast and saying Max Scherzer got popped for sticky stuff. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. 
Yeah. But again, it's more of a, if we are extending the conversation of how much are we rooting for this guy, uh, it certainly doesn't help <laughs> now, not that there aren't people that we like that use sticky stuff, whatever. But that also is related to the other element of this as we continue down the road of why this is the least perfect game imaginable is he's not good at pitching. <laughs> like he's been bad. He's been a bad pitcher. And and that in some ways what some people would say, oh, but that's what makes it so great because of this. Anybody can do this. And sure, that's true. But from my selfish perspective of what would a good perfect game be? What is a perfect game I want to see completed? It is not by a pitcher who is bad, especially when he's facing the team trying to be bad on purpose the most. Correct. The Oakland A's this season are built to lose. That is the purpose of the Oakland Athletics in the year of our Lord. 2023. And so does it make it any less impressive? Yes. Yes, it does. I understand that everyone on the Oakland A's is waking up every day and trying to get hits and that most of the hitters in that lineup would be a legitimate 26th man or 20th man on a lot of good major league teams. But you can't build the whole ship out of that, right? The whole plane, it can't be the black box for lack of a better term. And so that's why it is especially underwhelming. In regards to Hermandron, his perfect game lowered his ERA to 4.54 and bumped his wins above replacement this season to 0.3. Yeah. And this is a, different right. than like Philip Umber when mm -hmm. he threw his perfect game, who was an anonymous pitcher. Right. That's like, oh, this dude I've never heard of who's barely played in the big leagues. Good for him. That's a great story. Right. Whereas I wish Herman, I had never heard of Domingo Herman. That would make right. me feel way better. Um, and also it's the Yankees, right? Duh. It's like this is every possible version of this where I'm not necessarily enjoying it. Again, it's if you're a Yankees fan, you love Higashioka. You love the fact that Josh Donaldson contributed to a win and all these whatever things. Whatever. Fine. Like I'm not. I, it's OK. And and I are, you know, our our favorite Yankees fan, Randy Wilkins, he tweeted something to this exact sentiment where he was like, great. I'm not happy about him. I'm happy the Yankees won. Moving on. <laughs> I have to say. We crap on the Yankees fan base a lot, and legitimately so sometimes. The people that we follow on Twitter who are Yankees fans, I thought handled this event pretty rationally and pretty appropriately, where they were like, well, be happy for Higashioka. Yeah. Or, or, I mean, again, it is it is a team achievement. I mean, there's, there's no way around that. And like the Yankees sure have needed some good team achievements recently. They haven't had a ton of those. So like I, I can understand that feeling like it coming at the right time. That's all fine. I'm not again. This is we have this platform in this podcast to share how we feel. Um, and also, I think by some extension, how we think a lot of the people that we appreciate and respect feel. And so that's that's kind of where we're coming from here. Uh, but all of that, again, you know, for me on top of it, I mean, listen, as we just established, I think that's kind of where most people are at with this, with this performance for all those many reasons, uh, ranging from very serious to why didn't they pinch hit Jace Peterson? Um, but I am, uh, at the same time, as you know, like this is something that is very near and dear. The perfect game is very near and dear and dear to my heart. And, you know, I've seen Mariners fans, you know, and on my personal account, they'll say like, who cares? Like, I never understood why it was that big of a deal for Felix's to have the last one. And that's fine, of course. I'm not going to tell them they're wrong. But for me in particular, just like to give people background, like 2011 is the year I really start 
uh, watching the Mariners a lot. And 2012 is when I'm really locked in. And so the Felix Perfect game in August of 2012 is basically like cementing the, the fandom. Like truly for me, that was the moment where I was like, I'm in. This is my team. This is my player. Like, And he obviously already was for, for a year plus before then. But And so that that's why I have cared. And that's why I knew someone was going to throw a perfect game eventually, especially as batting averages have plummeted to the degrees that they have over the last decade. And so I I did. I, I cared about this a lot in, in a very unique way that I think is <laughs> not like a lot of people's fandoms. Like there's some ways that in, in fanhood that I do not take seriously as much as other people. Um, I don't live and die in every game as much as I love them. I don't like I just I, I don't bother with that. Uh, but there's some things these this specific element was very personal to me and uh, it sucks. So, I mean, again, it makes me still appreciate Felix a lot and that doesn't necessarily change that. Um, but it is funny. And, and I think I, I can't remember who pointed this out on someone on Mariner Twitter that it is funny how now the exact opposite is true, where now I can't wait for the next perfect game. Well, I was <laughs> going to say, like, Jordan, yeah, tonight, yeah. friend of the show, Lucas mm-hmm. Giolito mm-hmm. facing the Oakland Athletics. Get right back on the wagon lucas perfect tonight against the a's he's, wait how could he's facing oakland that's how is he pitched didn't he just pitch against the angels i that that would be a quick a quick turnaround i feel like that would be maybe that's later this weekend that seems impossible uh according right. to am baseball, i wrong according to baseball reference it says that his next game is friday june 30th versus oakland okay. or maybe that's the next white Sox game yeah that's the next white Sox game <laughs> i was like whoa lucas lucas going on short rest after beating the angels <laughs> to face oakland and throw a perfect game to make his friend jordan happy no uh I, maybe he's starting on sunday but i don't believe he's going <laughs> on friday um but no but so, still as i was saying like i'm excited to see uh who who's next now i can actually root for it again but as I said, like, it was just fine. Like, we've literally spent years as guys have gone into the seventh, gone into the eighth, thinking like, oh, would this be, where did this rank? Oh, who, who do we want to see? And uh, it was, could not be more opposite on Wednesday. But it is what it is. Uh, we move on. Felix still, of course, the, the perfect game that means the most in my heart. That will probably always be true no matter what. Um, but yeah, so, it, but certainly news, certainly a bit, you know, historic thing that happened. And by the way, one other thing on top of this, the A's had the longest streak of not being no hit. That's the other wild part about this, and and they're just kind of wild to think. Um, and so that was also broke. So, oh boy, a lot of lot of lot of layers to that. But we, of course, needed to talk about it. Uh, all right, Jake, what else is going on now? Listen, despite his perfect game, you know it's not going to be starting. Uh, you know who's not happening in a couple of weeks is Domingo Herman starting the All Star game. Thank goodness. But we do have our All Star starters. They were announced last night. Now, of course, these are the, the, the people who have been voted in. So that is an important detail. But uh, quick reactions to the all-star starters that we'll be seeing in Seattle. Democracy sucks, bro. You're out. You're out on democracy. I'm out on democracy more than I've ever been out on democracy. Like, do the people really need to say, are we truly experts on the sport? Is the American populace, is the American populace the body that should be determining who leads this country and who leads this all-star game. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. Let's talk about Orlando Arcia. Here's here's my take on Orlando Arcia. I love it. And here's why. I actually do think 
I like the idea of the best team getting one random player to start in the All-Star game. Like, it doesn't always work out. Sometimes the positions, but it's not like there were that many other obvious, like the people caping for Geraldo Perdomo. Like, no, I love Geraldo Perdomo. What a season. But like, it's not that big of a deal. Like, I hope he makes the All-Star game. Like, Orlando Arcia has been really good. Like, it's not like we're voting in. This isn't an Omar Infante situation or even, you know, someone way worse where we're talking about, you know, the NBA All-Star voting where you have backup centers being voted in by their native country and stuff like that. Like, no, like, Orlando Arcia has been good. The Braves are the best team in baseball. Like, it's fine. They Give them a little treat, a little bonus Arcia. It's not the worst we've ever seen. Let's just read them out. American League, Jonah Heim. Beat out Adley Rushman in, mm. uh, I believe that was stuffing the ballot box. I think we need a recount there. Mm. Stop the steal. First base, uh, Yandy Diaz for the Rays. Second base, Semyon for the Rangers. Third base, Josh Young for the Rangers. Shortstop, Corey Seager for the Rangers. Outfield will be Mike Trout, Aaron Judge, who is injured and will be replaced. Randy Arozarena for Tampa and Shohei Otani as the DH. In the NL, Sean Murphy in his first All-Star game behind the plate, that's one I'm really happy about. Freddie Freeman at first. Lisa Rise at second. Third base is Nolan Arenado. Shortstop, Arcia. Outfield will be Acuna, Corbin Carroll, and Mookie Betts. And DH will be J.D. Martinez. My favorite thing about All-Star voting is when the not-famous player on the not-famous team having an elite, notable, newsworthy season gets recognized by fans of other teams. And this year, that is Louisa Rise and that is Corbin Carroll. That mm-hmm. is super cool to me. I understand Jonah Heim and Josh Young and they're having great seasons. That's cool. Part of them being voted in is like a push from Rangers fans because they're good and the fan base is excited and mobilized. That takes nothing away from them, whatever. I love when America is saying, oh, Louisa Rise. I read some articles about how he's hitting 400. Click. Oh, Corbin Carroll. He's an exhilarating outfielder who's from Seattle, taking the league by storm as a rookie. Click. That to me shows that the media, the baseball media, us idiots, are doing something by educating people about who is fun and good and worthy of being an all-star. Yeah. No, I I totally agree. And I would expect we'll probably get five Rangers. I, I think Adolis Garcia will probably end up replacing uh, Judge there. It could be Kiermaier, which would which would be cool too. But but yeah, I mean whatever. Like Rangers and Braves and and uh, and Rays. Like yeah, they're they're all the best teams. So I I can't get too bad out of shape about the the All Star starters. I, I think it's way more interesting to debate the the reserves and whatnot because that is actually where. There's a lot more people who, in theory, we are trusting more to make the decisions to get the best players and, and the most deserving players from the first half into the All-Star game. So that will be a conversation more for next week. And we can sing our favorite Smash Mouth song, Hey Now, You're an All-Star Injury Replacement. <laughs> hey Now, uh, someone wanted to go on vacation, so you get to go to Seattle. Uh, Corey <laughs> Seager is going to do everything he possibly can to get out of going to the All-Star. Oh, game. I have I have no and doubt about that. So just quickly, and then we'll take a break. Mm-hmm. and said it to Hayden Dravinsky. A lot of players don't like going to the All-Star game. Mm-hmm. And I get it. I do. I understand it is a showcase for the better uh, betterment of the sport, whatever. Mm-hmm. If you had four off days, like the whole year together, where you could go home and spend time with your family in a seventh month span, 
Again, I know they're making millions of dollars. I understand this. I would do everything possible to get out of the fake baseball game in Seattle all the way across the country so that I could go see my kids. I would do the same thing if it wasn't a, I wasn't a first-time guy. You know what I mean? And so, yes, it is really stupid and dorky when guys make up excuses to leave, mm-hmm. but I do get it. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a range, and, and we want to see the guys. And it, it, it's it's usually balanced out because the guys that are there for the first time, it's so cool. And they do bring their families, right? And so that's part of the fun. But the ones on their sixth, seventh, eighth time, like – Especially because it's not like we really care. I mean, I I don't care. It's not going to make the game any more or less interesting. And so whether they're there or not. And so I do not blame them uh, whatsoever. So let's send it to our interview with Hayden Travinsky. Before we do that, Jordan, can you give a 20-second overview of who Hayden Travinsky is and why we thought he was relevant enough to bring on our very important podcast? (laughs) Sure. So Hayden Travinsky is, is one of the few catchers for, for LSU baseball. We met him earlier this season. You know, we, we cover college baseball off for D1Baseball.com and the Shock Factor podcast on the SiriusXM podcast network with our friend Stephen Shock. And we were there earlier this season uh, for an early season tournament and we, we got to see LSU and we met Hayden. And at that point, he's, you know, he's a redshirt junior in his fourth year at LSU. They have all these famous players and he wasn't playing. But middle of the season, because of some injuries, he got to start playing, hit a bunch of homers in a bunch of games in a row, and then ultimately caught the final out of the LSU National Championship, which was not expected because of what happened earlier in that championship game. But he has some great perspective on Paul Skeens and Dylan Cruz, who are very likely going to be the first two picks in the upcoming MLB draft. And we think that even for people who don't necessarily care about college baseball, they'll appreciate some insight into those two people who are going to be very relevant in our MLB lives very soon, as well as what it's like to win a national championship. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with Hayden Travinsky of LSU Baseball. This is former PGA Tour winner Smiley Kaufman, host of The Smiley Show, a SiriusXM podcast. You want to know what I love about golf? I get to talk to some really cool people. I get to walk the fairways of the best courses in the world with the best players in the world, and I get to share it with you every single week. Listen to The Smiley Show right now on Stitcher, Pandora, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's Smiley, S-M-Y-L-I-E. And welcome back to Baseball Barbacast. We are very excited to be joined by a national champion, the man who caught the final out for the LSU Tigers in Omaha just a few days ago, Mr. Hayden Travinsky. Welcome to Baseball Barbacast, my friend. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it, as always. Hayden, let's get right to the point. Where's the ball? So I, I gave it a lot of thought, put it in the back pocket after it ended, and I was like, all right, there's one of two ways. I can be a team guy. Or I can be a me guy. Um, I opted for the team guy. Boo. Equipment manager. But I, I gave it very heavy thought of just putting it in my bag and acting like I didn't know where it went. But uh, as your coach. Well, uh, <laughs> you had a lot of time. You had a lot of time to think about what you were going to do with it. Considering you guys were up by two touchdowns in the championship game. Yeah, I had five <laughs> innings to think about it, really. So, Hayden, there's a lot of places we can go with this conversation. And the reason why we wanted to have you on is 
First of all, you uh, have been very kind to us this season during our college baseball uh, endeavors, but we wanted to bring you to the National Barbacast audience because I think your individual season and your experience with this LSU Tigers team, which has undeniably been one of the more hyped college baseball teams that we've had of all time, I think you are the perfect personality to kind of help tell the story of it from the beginning, both for you and for the team in whole. So before we get to this season in particular, you growing up in Louisiana, when does the LSU dream start for Hayden Travinsky? When 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 did you first think I want to play for the Tigers one day? So I really didn't have a whole lot of like love for college sports as a whole. I didn't grow up like a big LSU football fan. I really wasn't even a big LSU baseball fan to be fair. Um because growing up, this is around this was around the time where like UF was really good with like Pete Alonzo and all those dudes. And that's what I remember watching. But uh, as soon as I started getting recruited and stuff, the, it just made a lot of sense just to kind of stay home. And uh, there's so much legacy and stuff at LSU that I just want to be a part of that. And now part of that, I would imagine, is because you're from northern Louisiana. You're like, what, four hours, three and a half hours drive from Baton right. Rouge? Right. Yeah. And For- I do think honestly, that plays a big part. Right. But for the kids on the team with you who are from either, you know, just north of I-10, which is kind of the dividing line in a way, or south of I-10, guys like Joe Bear and Dugas and um, players uh, like freaking Beloso, right? Like these guys are dreaming of wearing this uniform as soon as they're five years old, right? Yeah, exactly. I can, yeah, yeah, and I can be in their shoes and, and for us to take the path that we did especially over the last three years um, or four years for me in particular, but it's really special that this is how it kind of ends up. So for those who haven't, maybe don't follow college baseball that closely, you might vaguely know, yeah, LSU is usually pretty good. That that doesn't, that's not like a, a flaming hot take, but I think your experience, as you just mentioned, this is your fourth year on campus. A lot has changed over those four years for the LSU Tigers. So I'm curious, what is, what is the biggest difference? And you could pinpoint it, I'm sure, Jay Johnson has a lot to do with it, but from when you got there in in 2020, I believe was your first year, and that was very different for a lot of people to to where we are now in 2023. Well, I think the biggest thing was probably the pandy wandy. The pandemic was probably the biggest change um, that made a big impact on a lot of things, not just LSU baseball. Yes, the pandy wandy, indeed. But I think the biggest thing, um, I think the biggest part of the reason why we had success this year is. I think we got lucky in terms of the people that we had, uh, not just as players, but just human beings. And when you kind of get the perfect storm, um, all the work and everything kind of manifests itself at the success. Um, but the biggest thing over the past four years, I think personally, is just uh, on a personal level, at least, I've just I've tried to become so much more like uh, grateful for everything, regardless, good or bad, because for a long time there, it was a lot of it was a lot more bad than it was good, and I had a tough time dealing with it. Um, I mean, I've had four surgeries, I had three surgeries in fourteen months, so I think a lot of it was just kind of learning myself to help me form like a better perspective of the outside. Um, and then obviously, coach came in and made a huge transition last year or the year before. We kind of had a little bit of a scuffle. Didn't do what we wanted, but it was a a stepping stone to get where we are now. I'm curious about integrating the transfer guys in the offseason. Because for folks who don't know, a huge part of the LSU story 
is the transfer portal. And there was the moment when I think you guys beat Wake Forest and Coach Jay Johnson is up there on the podium sitting next to Tommy White, who transferred from NC State, and Paul Skeens, who transferred from Air Force, and Thatcher Hurd, who transferred from UCLA. And it's like none of these three guys were born in Louisiana or raised in Louisiana or a Louisianan. When they show up, and I guess you could kind of throw Christian Little into that mix as well, like when they show up before the season, how do you go about integrating these dudes into the team? Because it's like, yeah, they're going to make us better, but they might take out bats for me. They haven't been here. How do you strike a balance between helping the ball club and, you know, feeling a little bit of jealousy or selfishness about it, which is a nat- total natural human emotion? Um, well, I think, again, I think we got lucky that I think in a scenario where you have something like the transfer portal, you can definitely attract people who may not be the best in character just due to the circumstances. There's so many different players, so many universities and um, just so many different opportunities can happen. And I think we got lucky. Like we have, like you said, Skeens, Tommy, Thatcher, Christian, and all of them are very just good people. And uh, what all I did in terms of like getting to know them was just trying to hang out with them more. Like I remember the first time I met Thatcher, him and I went to Waffle House and we were eating off of plastic plates at Waffle House because they ran out of silverware, stuff like that. Um, what was not, Thatcher Hurd's What was Thatcher Hurd's Waffle House experience to that point? I think it was the first time, and yeah. we were off of a plastic plate, a bunch of yelling going on. It's the perfect experience, really. Welcome to the South, motherfucker. Welcome, baby. Uh, and then, I honestly, like, I I don't think Paul, Paul gets enough credit for, uh, he obviously does in terms of how he is as a leader, but being able to watch him on a daily basis, um, everyone kind of fed off of how detailed he was and how process-oriented everything is. And I think that made the transition for everybody just a lot easier. So I think what you're what you're getting at is is clearly important, and I think that's kind of come through for the entire season, and certainly in Omaha. And Coach Jay Johnson's talked a lot about that. But let's focus on the field a little bit, especially before the season, and even last summer, because when you add all these players, and maybe you don't know Paul Skeens is going to be like the greatest college pitcher of all time, but you know he's pretty good, and you know what Tommy White's capable of, and you know what Thatcher Hurd's capable of. When you're in fall ball, the dorks like us who cover college baseball are just imagining and looking at this roster and thinking, holy shit, these, this is going to be this amazing all-star team college baseball, right? But you actually then have to go do it. So when did you realize in the fall, if it was in the fall or this, this year, we were like, oh, no, we can be this good. Like, this is not just a matter of hype. This can be one of the best teams in the country, if not, you know, in many years. So our first scrimmage of the fall we ran out seven different arms and I think there was one arm under 95 that entire game. And I was like, after that, I said, damn, I've never seen anything like that. Um, Cause I think people forget we had four dudes go down this year that all threw a hundred. We had four <laughs> more. Dudes. So like, it wasn't even just the players that on the field. It was players that we lost that I mean, they would have made that this year a lot more smooth sailing, but I think that first scrimmage really opened my eyes. And then when we started barreling our own pitching and having good at bats, I was like, okay, now it's scary on both sides of them. And then in the, once the spring starts, but like, how do you deal with that? And then, you know, you've been asked this question before, 
But did you did you guys embrace it and you were like, hell yeah, we're supposed to be the national champions? Or was there even was there ever moments before the season where it was like, holy shit, like this is a lot of pressure? Right, like if not we don't, just from if, if yeah. we don't win, we failed. Oh, yeah. we knew we, that was how it's going to be, regardless. If we didn't, yeah. if we would have lost against Florida, that's exactly how it would have been. Mm-hmm. One of the most talented teams that could have done it, and that's what. When we scuffled throughout the middle of the year, that that was a big point of emphasis when we had like player meetings where um, we didn't want to leave with the feeling of what could have been. Well, like to hear uh, they had the most talented team that college baseball has seen in a long time and to not win at all. We knew that'd be just the, it'd be disrespectful to each other, but it would just be disappointing nonetheless. So let's get into your story a little bit here. So you mentioned you had a bunch of surgeries didn't get as much run maybe as you wanted over your first three seasons. And then ha- like halfway through this year, Hayden Travinsky wakes up and he says, hello, everybody. How's it going? You had more hits this season than you did in your three other years combined, which yeah. is kind of wild to look at on a stats page. You had, what was it, Jordan? Eight home runs in like a 10 game stretch. Or well, something I think it insane. was, I think it was 10 homers in a, in a 12 game stretch. And yeah, again, for those not familiar, like, unsurprisingly, there's a lot of catching talent on the LSU roster. And so guys like Alex Malazzo, and we could talk about him, and, and Brady Neal, an incredible freshman who would come in. And it seemed like that Ole Miss series, I don't know if it was an injury that's, that that put you in the lineup uh, to begin with, but immediately it was like, all right, well, I, I, here's my chance, and now I'm just going to start hitting homers. Like, did you sense that you were – of course, you always wanted to play. Everyone wants to, wants to get playing time. But did you feel like you were ready to go on a hot streak like that, or were you just excited to be playing again? Both. Um, I think the gratitude of just being around the guys and appreciating every moment for what it is instead of um, – kind of looking towards what I want or what I wish was going on. I think that really had a lot to do with the success that I had. But I think a lot of it, too, goes down to, like, delusional confidence. So uh, I would joke around all the time about, like, I was like, wow, I'm really a big leaguer stuck in college. Like, I would continually say it over and over and over. <laughs> when you're not playing. When you're not yeah, playing. Like, when I, have, I'm, I had eight at-bats on the year, and I'm saying this shit to my teammates. And uh, just to get laughs out of them. But then I slowly started to, like, really believe it. And then when the at-bats started flowing, it all kind of just it, it just happened. It's, it, it is really one of the more uh, remarkable game logs you will see for any for any college player, let alone someone in your situation. Um, it was so, almost Jordan. Yeah. It was like an eight mile where he's just like he, he gets on a on a heater and he, he don't, you don't even know what's coming out of your mouth. Like, oh, it's a home run again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which which again for you, too, like when we saw you at the very beginning of the season and you weren't playing yet, like. You you I, you know you knew your role and you'd been at LSU whatever, okay. So at what point during the hot streak now now you're talking shit and you're backing it up. So was there one homer or one game that you remember where everyone is like, damn, this kid this kid wasn't kidding. He's he's pretty good. Yeah. So I think it was after I had hit I don't know my fifth or sixth, and I think uh, coach said something along the lines of, "What the hell have I been doing?" And it really made me feel like, all right, good. So I want to ask you about Skeens and his first start in Omaha that you caught, where there were moments during that start where 
when he would ask for a new ball, he would freaking peg that thing back at you like 95 miles an hour at your feet. What was that about? Yeah, so that was the first start in Omaha against Tennessee. And uh, I'd caught him two times before that at this point. So it's not, that's really not a whole lot of experience with somebody, just three starts. But him and I have a good relationship when it comes to banter and just goofing off and fucking around, anyways. And uh, he kept giving me this weird look when he kept doing this. I didn't like it. And then he started raising it. And <laughs> he crow hopped one of them and spiked it at my feet. And the umpire is behind me laughing his ass off. And I keep going like, dude, he won't stop. And then he sails one over me, makes me jump for another one, all just to get him a new ball and while he's laughing at me in the process. It's, it's, it was pretty demoralizing to be a part of. So you told us uh, when we saw you in Omaha before, even before then, that your experience catching skins, we, we referenced how you weren't catching at the beginning of the season. And obviously this was uh, his first year at LSU. So it's not like you really knew him at a time. Um, talk about your uh, development, literally having the experience to catch him, because I understand you were a little bit late to the party than your, your fellow catchers. Yeah. So I had no idea. My first time catching him was against Tulane in the regional. And, uh, I hadn't caught him in the fall, hadn't caught him in the spring and I didn't even think I was playing. And, uh, I, I heard someone say, Oh, is he catching? And I said, who? I said, I'm catching who? They said, Paul. And I, this is an hour before the game. I'm like, oh, my God. They didn't even tell me. Oh, my God. And so I was already nervous as is. But I realized it's easier to catch him than anybody else just because the level of command and uh, the intent behind it. it it's really easy. I'm not going to lie. Right. Because it's a bit different than uh, there's a lot of, lot of college pitchers, even the good ones that are spiking stuff left and right. But you basically right. can say, hey, Paul, throw it here. Uh, and it'll probably do that. Last question that I have is Dylan Cruz. So his feel for the barrel as a hitter is really unlike anything we've seen at the college level. For people who might not know what that means, he is able to adjust his swing path anywhere in the zone to hit the ball hard on the meaty part of the bat. I'm curious when you realize he's special because you've been with him for three years and he's able to do things in the box that other people at this level cannot do. So he didn't really have a blazing freshman fall, but what a, what a washed up bum. (laughs) Well, opening day comes our opening weekend and hell he faced Paul. And he barreled 97 up and in out to left field at like 116. And I was like, what the hell is that? And the more you just watch him progress and he got stronger and faster, the more special it got. I mean, he ended this year with a 75 on, on base streak, 75 game on base streak. Um, but I think I've seen a lot of stuff like doubting that he's going to be successful at the next level. But I've, I've never seen someone control the bat like he does or control at bats like he does. He takes professional at-bats. I think that's the biggest thing, and people can uh, lose sight of that. But he had 60-some walks this year in college. That's that's usually unheard of. And I think um, he's going to he's gonna continue to get better and better and better. And he can go pole to pole. And uh, that's another thing. You don't really see people drive the ball opposite field in the manner that he does. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that his freshman fall was not necessarily – as incredible because 
it was a big deal for him to even get to LSU in the first place. But at the same time, and you know this being there, and certainly in the last few years, you have all kinds of famous high schoolers coming into LSU, big-time recruits. And and you are one of them, too. Like, the people who've done all the perfect game showcases and everybody knows. So it's like, it's almost hard to distinguish between until you actually get to the games. But as you said, once he's playing freshman spring, it's like, oh, no, no, no. He's, he's not just like, all of us are really good. He's Dylan Cruz. <laughs> so, yeah. Level that he plays with. Um that's what impresses me the most. Because obviously, I think that's what separates great players from just really good players or even okay, okay players. Is where, like, their bad day is still a really good day. Mm-hmm. They're still productive on a really bad day. So it's like, uh, you don't really see times where it's like, oh, Dill was struggling. And that's for reasons because he's really, really good. My last question is jello shot related. I don't think this is mm-hmm. something that we got to talk about. I just want to know, now that it's all over, uh, we're not trying to get anybody in trouble. I want to have a sense for, did the team consume any jello shots at any point of the 68,000 plus that the LSU fan base uh, set a record that may never be topped at uh, the Rocco's bar across the street from the stadium? They do a contest, all right, which fan base can have the, buy the most jello shots over the course of the College World Series? LSU won by like 55,000 or something. <laughs> did the team get to participate at any point or was it just, you know, donors and parents and all kinds of fun stuff? Um, once the games commenced, everyone of legal drinking age was invited to the establishment. Um, <laughs> yes. could, could, or could not have been some consumed. I personally did not. They looked terrible. Um, <laughs> I did not want to ingest that in my body. But... Uh, okay. The answer yeah, is... Sense. There was a non-zero number of jello shots consumed by <laughs> members of the team. That is all I need to know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what's next for you, man? That's my last question. Like, what are you doing this summer? What are you doing next year? If you don't know, that's fine. But figure it out. Ask what's what's on the docket for Mr. Hayden Travinsky. Um, I don't know, to be fair. I think I'm just going to kind of play it by how it comes. Um I don't really want to give it too much thought because then, uh, like, it's so far away in terms of next next month, next two months. Um, I'm just going to keep getting my body healthy and uh, keep training, and that's about it. Pretty pretty chill summer for Hayden Travinsky, it sounds like. Uh, yeah, I don't. No, I'm not going to play anywhere or do anything like that. Um, I don't know. I, I'm just very, and I'm thankful for you guys being able to run into you guys after. You know, I've been following the two of you for almost like eight years now. So I think it's it's cool to see everything kind of come full circle. Um, I'm grateful for this. I'm grateful for you guys. So I think uh, it's just a special time and I'm just trying to try to soak it all in. Hayden Travinsky, thank you so much for joining us on Baseball Barbercast. Congratulations on uh, winning a national championship. It was very cool to watch. Very happy for you and, and good luck with wh- whatever is next, my friend. Thank you, guys. And like I said, I'm thankful for you guys and I appreciate this. And we're back here on Baseball Barbacast. I'm Jake Mitz. That's Jordan Schusterman. We're going to speed right through to the good, the bad, and the ugly. One thing good, one thing bad, and one thing ugly, bizarre, weird from the week that was in baseball. I will lead us off this week with a little chat about Jazz Chisholm. He is good. And he is good in such a special way. 
I would say that people in baseball, players specifically, do not like Jazz Chisholm. They don't. They talk crap about him all the time behind his back. We have heard it. We have gotten some of it directly. I would say part of that disdain is because Jazz has not actually played that much. He has played 247 career games. Ballplayers love ballplayers who show up and post, who play all the time. Jazz has not necessarily done that yet. People also don't like Jazz because he is a loud, um, spotlight-loving, young black guy. And that is like undebatably a part of it in a sport where people don't like being famous. I just wrote about Corey Seager. Jazz wants to be famous and that's okay. And we like that. And I understand some of the critiques about Jazz from like the games played perspective. But when he is on the field, holy shit, what an entertainer. What a lovely thing to watch. He moves. He floats when he hits a home run, his trot is must-see TV. Totally. He He's glides, the only, arguably the only guy like that. He glides around the bases, man, after he hits a home run. Like he's walking on clouds. I love watching him play so much. The homer he hit to dead center at Fenway this week was incredible. So Jazz Chisholm is good. He is good for our sport. He is good to watch play, and I hope he is good on the field the rest of the year. We just talked on Wednesday about how, talking to Daniel Alvarez, how will Jazz kind of fit back in and, and seamless. Amazing. Marlins are on fire. They are so much fun. Uh, come on, Marlins. Continue to make us proud. There's our edit there. Uh, my good is a pretty simple one, um, but it's a combination of guys. It's Taiwan Walker and Ranger Suarez, who have been two of the best pitchers in baseball over the last month and a huge part of the reason why the Phillies are in great shape compared to... Now, I mean, as we just said, the Marlins and Braves are so good, so they haven't made up too much ground, but still, they're very much in the mix, and that is because of the starting pitching that they've gotten from Walker and Suarez in the month of June, each of which I believe has not allowed more than one run in any of their June starts. They've been fantastic. Suarez, especially since he started the season late after an injury, cool to kind of remember what he has become as a starting pitcher. We think about him in that hybrid role. We saw him in the bullpen, saw him as a starter. This dude is just really good. And Walker, I got to say, I've just been impressed because I think we're both the low guy on him, but he's really delivered for them when Aaron Nola has not. I was not the low guy on him. He was a dark horse Cy Young candidate for me when we did our Fox Sports season predictions. For Ty- Taiwan Walker, really? I believe I, that's what okay, I wrote down. Okay, all right. Yeah. Then forgive me. Forgive me. I, I I take that back then. But he has been, uh, he's been, he's been tremendous and, oh. and yeah, huge, huge part of Philly's success recently. 169 ERA in his last eight starts. Okay, what is bad? There's a lot bad in the world. There's a lot bad in baseball, Jordan. But what is bad for me this week? Uh, the Twins offense oh. is so fucking bad that they held a closed-door players-only meeting this week because the Braves are better than them. And I saw a great tweet about how the Braves have caused three closed-door meetings this year. It's so good. Incredible good quotes from Rocco Baldelli about his own team. I just want to read them and then I'm going to let them sit and we'll move on to you. Quote, we were flat. We made no adjustments in the game whatsoever. That's not good baseball. We got wiped this series by the team on the other side of the field. There's no way we can walk out of this with any positives to be honest with you. And that's the truth. I am not pleased right now with the effort in this series. Dude. (laughs) 
Love that. Same, bro. Just love that. Let it yeah. let it eat. Yeah. Not ideal. Uh, bad. My bad this week makes me sad, and that is Adam Wainwright. Now, it's one thing to struggle pitching in the goofy <laughs> conditions of London, um, but uh, facing the Astros at home yesterday, another clunker for our 41-year-old hero who returned this year hoping for his final season to be some triumphant finish to an amazing career. And instead, his ERA is 7.45, which is the fourth worst in baseball among pitchers with 40 innings, better than only Fujinami and Kyle Muller of the worst team we've ever seen and Chris Flexen, who is just DFA'd. Uh, I hope that Adam Wainwright can finish this season on his own terms, but it makes me sad because even though I know no one is rooting, no, not a lot of neutral people are rooting for the Cardinals, Adam Wainwright is a delight, and I do not want to see him go out like this, but um, we might be seeing him go out like this, and that bums me out. So, Especially sorry. because last year he could have ridden into the sunset. Could have went out with him. Yep. With Pujols and Molina. And instead he said, let's do one more. Yeah. And then he did one more. And it's a <laughs> seven, four or five ERA. Okay. Let's do oh. Ugla. I'm going to read an email that we got from Mark Sales. He says, hello, Jake and Jordan. Hope all is well. I feel as though there's been a lot of talk about big stories. Can Luis Arise hit 400? Can Acuna go 50-50? Can Otani break Judge's record and win Cy Young? But I think the real home run chase is being ignored. Can Jose Siri break Kevin Elster's single season record for home runs out of the nine spot? Out of the nine spot in the lineup. He is on pace to do it. The Rays are playing as I write this, and he's in the seven hole, which hurts his case. After tonight, the Rays will have played 83 games, and he has 12 homers out of the nine spot in the order. By my math, he's on pace for about 23 home runs while hitting ninth. Elster is the single season leader with 21, Charles Johnson, 16, Veritech, 16, Maldonado, 15, Nick Trot Nixon, 15. I love this chase because in order to break the record, Sari would have to pace himself. You can't hit too many home runs out of the nine spot because then he's likely to get moved up. He has three home runs in his last four games, which is what caused him to move up to seventh in the order. Can't be doing that if he's serious about passing Elster. If he gets close, does Kevin Elster Jr., Travel around the country to witness the home run in person alongside Sari's parents. Thanks, guys, Mark. Such a good email. Yes. Uh, Mark is the same person that delivered us the Cutter Crawford's Cutter Sucks news. So he's on fire lately, and we appreciate the insight. This I love this concept. Um, yeah, he was, you know, he was batting seventh, but he's bounced back and forth. We've seen him go ninth back to seventh. So I think he's got a shot. I think he's got a shot. The Rays lineup is good enough that we can keep putting him ninth. But yeah, we'll see. Two things about this. One, he's fast. And so managers love putting a fast guy at nine because right. it's a second leadoff hitter. That's true. Two, got to keep that batting average in an OBP low. So if his mm. on-base percentage right now, it's 288. I mean, you keep that thing under 300, you'll stay in the nine hole, <laughs> Jose Three. Don't you worry, little head. Uh, it's so great. I love this. I'm, I Now I'm just eagerly checking where Siri is in the lineup every night. Um, this is great. All right, my ugly this week, I have just sent in the Zoom chat. Um, just came across the timeline. This is just feltless, screamed of ugly. I don't know if you saw this, but I was just like, wow, this is great. Uh, <laughs> um, Jake, uh, what, are you, what, what video are you looking at? This was, of course, uh, aggregated by our friends at John Boy. Uh, we're going to read the caption of the video that I have just sent you, which is you know good if you watch the sound, but even if you don't watch, uh, just, just tell me what you're seeing. 
It says Barry Bonds has been promoted to a Brazilian jiu-jitsu blue belt. And so it's just a video of Barry Bonds in a San Francisco jiu-jitsu uh, studio receiving his blue belt, which I did some jiu-jitsu research, and that's just the second level. Um, so it, this is like the next, you know, you start with the white belt and I think it's different Taekwondo and karate, but I did say, it seems like blue belt is just like, you have kind of achieved the basics and now you have, are moving on to somewhat advanced, um, which is amazing. And first of all, this is a, my favorite thing about this video is even though he has slimmed down in recent years for both obvious reasons and because he is biking a lot. Um, he still looks absolutely fucking gigantic next to everybody else in the room. <laughs> and uh, and I don't know if he's bulked up for his jujitsu um, uh, activities, but I just love everything about this video. According to Wikipedia, at the blue belt level, students gain a wide breadth of technical knowledge and undertake hundreds of hours of mat time to learn <laughs> how to implement these moves efficiently. Barry Bonds, could you imagine... You're like living in the Bay Area and your partner says, hey, um, you know, like you've been around the house recently. You always wanted to do martial arts. Why don't you join a jujitsu class? Oh, yeah, sure. There's a dojo down the block or whatever. Oh, you'll never believe who's in my jujitsu class. Oh, Kevin from work? No. Janine no. from high school? No. Oh, the home run king. Yeah. Oh, Barry Bunce. hey, uh, sparring, sparring partners. I don't know how. I don't know anything about jujitsu. There's probably enough people listening that that know about, um, you know, roughly martial arts that have done it as as a youth that could tell us more about this. I just need to know. I need to know so much more about this. Tony, Marsha, why don't you two pair up? Uh, Derek, Bruce, you go together. Uh, Jordan, you'll be with Barry Bonds. Hey, hey, Barry, take it easy on me. All right. Hey, hey, hey. give him like a little. Hey, Barry, yeah, yeah, you do. You know, you're going to knock me around like you knocked all those baseballs into the cubby cove, am I right? Hey. All right. Anyway, so this feels like <laughs> as ugly as it gets. Um, <laughs> thank you to John Boy for aggregating this for me. Uh, I uh, really appreciate it. Okay. Uh, anyway. More like, more like yeah. aggregate. This weekend, <laughs> there are baseball games, Jordan Schusterman. I don't sure really want to go deep on them because I want to get out of here and take a shower. Yeah. Um, for me... Marlins Braves. How real are the Marlins? Simple. Yeah. Go to Atlanta and prove yourself, right? Yep. Uh, Rangers Astros. Love it. Texas hosting Houston. That's That'll a uh, that's a, a weird Friday to Monday opportunity. Four games set uh, down in Arlington. So that's definitely a good one. As I mentioned earlier, I'm headed down to Cincinnati in about an hour uh, or less to see the Reds and Padres. Padres coming in on an L5 after getting swept by Pittsburgh. <laughs> Curious to see what those clubhouse vibes are like. Reds coming off the series win in Baltimore. They're obviously still in a good mood, so that should certainly be a good one. Uh, other than that, uh, those are probably the best the best ones I see here. Oh, and I mean, Rays Mariners. Mariners season, you know, hanging on by, by, a, by a really the thread here. Uh, Rays sneaky, not great on the road recently. So maybe that's some, some buzz for the Mariners, but they need any, all the help they can get. Surely it will be great to see Shane McClanahan this Friday evening. That should help things. I'm going to leave now. I'm Jake. Right. That's Jordan. Thanks for listening to the show. Remember to rate and review us. Yes. Rate and review. All kinds of fun. All-star stuff coming next week. Thank you to Chris Tyler for producing as always. Thank you to Hayden Travinsky for joining this episode of Baseball Barbercast. Everybody have a wonderful weekend and we will talk to you on Monday. 
Sirius XM Podcasts.